Hello, friends. This is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 1, Episode 10, The Kevin Miller Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life. Kevin, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. Yeah, man, I'm super excited. Um, Just so the listeners know, you and I met in town at some networking meetings, and we've had a few interactions. But the more I get to know you, the more remarkable your story unfolds and becomes. So I'm excited to share this with the audience today. So thank you very much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Just to give you a quick background, I don't want to steal Kevin's thunder, But Kevin is a 24-year veteran of the U.S. Navy. He was not only a naval aviator, he's also a defense consultant and the author of several books, Raven One being the biggest of the trilogy. So at this time, Kevin, start by talking about your past. So many people, especially during the 80s who are growing up, watch Top Gun and they want to be a naval aviator. And it's like a dream of so many. But you actually got to do this. In my life, I remember wanting to be a pilot and wanting to learn. And I had the circumstances, just how God had my life. I had a tumor when I was 18, so I was damaged goods. So no more pilot for me. But the requirements, I remember there was height requirements back then. There was weight requirements back then. There was You could not have broken an arm or any bone in your life back then. So you're truly the elite of the elite. So what first, before we go into your maybe childhood and backstory, what drew you to be an aviator? Well, um, I think, you know, with, with that, with that list of, of, of physical requirements, I think number one is, is eyesight. Yeah. And, and that's, that's just uh, a blessing and, and, and a gift. And, uh, uh, but, but yes, I was drawn to, to, Naval aviation as a small child. My father was in the Navy. My grandfather was in the Navy, but they were not aviators. But I have a memory, one of my earliest memories of uh, my father took me to Quonset Point, Rhode Island, where he had a friend on an aircraft carrier, USS Lake Champlain. And I'm five years old. And uh, so I don't understand any of this. I'm just going to go on a, on a trip with dad. And so we, we drove over to Quonset Point, Rhode Island, and, and then walked to the pier in this massive gray ship. And we go aboard it. And uh, memories of airplanes on the flight deck, and you can see Narragansett Bay. I didn't know what it was, but uh, yeah. just you know, looking down at the water from from the bridge far away, and uh, and and hey, there was ice cream in the wardroom. So you know, th- this is this is for me. So <laughs> so, at, at, so at that age, I was I was like, wow. And then by the time I was nine, I I think I I verbalized when I grow up, people would ask, yeah, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a Navy carrier pilot. From a nine-year-old, and and I okay, fine, whatever, you know. But seems so stuck. <laughs> at the age of, of, it's all I ever wanted to do. And then, uh, so I, I came here to Pensacola, and uh, and, and started my journey. I got a, my, my my commission as an officer first uh, through the ROTC program at the University of Mississippi. Then came down here, and uh, went to flight school. Started obviously where everyone does at uh, NAS Pensacola, which. Sadly, it's in the news recently. And then over to Whiting Field and uh, first learned to, to fly. And then uh, from there to Meridian, Mississippi, where I received my wings in August of 1983. Wow. Okay. And where did you start out? Like you said, you were in Rhode Island. 
Are you from Iran or no um, military? You moved military, and I, I think I, I counted once. I think uh, eleven schools in twelve years of uh, you know, you know, um, wow, uh, before college, uh, maybe ten schools, but uh, but yes, in in moving sometimes year to year to year, and uh, everywhere from uh, from Maine to Hawaii. Spent a lot of years in Southern California. Uh, and then graduated from high school in uh, in Mississippi on, on the Gulf Coast, and so the University of Mississippi had Navy ROTC, and that kind of made sense, and so that was where I got my commission. And you fit fit in, yeah, great. So, okay, so talk to us about your childhood, like when you were growing up. Your background did that prepare you for the structure and the discipline, or is the structure and discipline something you learned on your own, or a little of both? I, I think a little of both. I mean. Uh, Sure, a, a military family, and and uh, and dad would be uh, gone for extended periods of time. Uh, the Vietnam War was going on, and so one deployment, uh, nine months, you know, he was in, in Vietnam, uh, deployed a few times to Antarctica. He did in, in his career. Wow! And uh, was that a blessing uh, or a punishment? It, it was. No, it, it was. It was good. He, you know, it was a um, Operation Deep Freeze. It was called, and no, but that, but that's what uh, that's what he did. But no, it was a, it was a great childhood, and, and yes. We, we moved around sometimes year to year to year in the middle of the school year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, you're eight, nine, ten years old and, and you're the, you know, suddenly the, the new kid. Sometimes we move to a, uh, a base and there's, you know, and there's, there's Navy kids everywhere and everyone's, everyone gets it. And, and those, those are some pretty idyllic years. And, mm-hmm. and other times into a community where there's very little military and, and you kind of, you kind of stand out. But uh, I, I think that that those experiences, you know, helped me to, you know, to to be uh, what is outgoing, friendly. I mean, not that I really am all mm-hmm. that much, but you you have to, um, you know, meet new people and, and new experiences and, and adapt. And I, I wouldn't trade it. It was a it was a, a great childhood. That's all. Awesome. Now, do you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I'm the oldest of five. Oh, okay, oldest of five. So you had a little more responsibility. Oldest, the male, <laughs> military. All right. Um, so you go through your childhood, you move around a lot, but you're learning these life skills and you go into the officer program and you, you know, the ROTC program is a, is a pretty nice way to get a commission. I mean, uh, uh, there's the service academies, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, and today as we, as we, uh, as we record this army Navy game will be uh, later on today. (laughs) And, uh, and I applied to the Naval Academy and was not accepted. And it's a good thing that I wasn't. Uh, because I probably would have struggled, quite frankly. I wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the greatest student. I was a good student, but, uh, you know, we're, we're talking some, some really, you know, uh, obviously it's, it's an elite institution. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the other way to get a commission is officer candidate school. And that was, uh, that was something that, uh, that was always there. But, but, uh, the ROTC program where you go to college, and you're a regular college student, except one day a week you wear a uniform and you do your military thing, and and then in the summers you would uh, you would go on a on a cruise and kind of kind of learn stuff. Uh, one of those experiences was here at a Whiting Field when I was at uh, when I was a midshipman at uh, at uh, University of Mississippi and kind of got a taste of uh, of aviation, which I already knew that I wanted to do. <laughs> so it, it was a, that was a nice way to to show up here. Uh, I was already uh, an officer. Um, when I showed up in November of 1981 and began my journey. Now, that's interesting, again, because there's some of us 
and some of our, you know, some of our listeners where we're 42, 62, 22, and we still don't know what we want to be when we grow up. <laughs> and then there's some people like you who are listening who knew at an early age exactly what they wanted to be. By having that vision and focus at a young age, would you say that helped influence your decisions along the way as a child? Um, it, it, it probably did. Uh, I was I was unusual in that sense that uh, again at an early age I, I knew specifically I mean precisely what what I wanted to do and I'm I'm so blessed that I was able to live my dream, but um, but yes uh, you know if you, okay if you want to do this Kevin then you had better do your homework mm-hmm. and you better study and, and apply yourself and and uh, you know and take the right classes you know in, in high school to prepare for for college entry and. And uh, and then once you're there, obviously to to go into the ROTC program, which is um, it's harder. I mean, it's you know instead of taking a a, a typical 15 hour load, you're taking an 18, 19 hour load, and, which and, doesn't and sound can, like much, but it's a huge difference. Sure, it, it's there, and then you know there's there's other uh, there's other restrictions, and there's there's behavioral restrictions. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't uh, you know don't you know don't do something stupid or it's all over and, and your dreams are done. And, and so, uh, so, so yes, in, in that sense, yes. Yeah. It was kind of a guide for you and mm-hmm. to, while other kids were going maybe to a party, like, eh, I'm not going to that. Please could show up. I could change my career. Another, another aspect of this, um, is, is, uh, my religion, God and, and growing up, uh, my family, uh, went to mass every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was, you know, you're, you're going to mass. I mean, there was never a doubt. It wasn't a, should we go? So, no, we're, we're going. <laughs> and, and, uh, it was never a doubt. So that carried with me into college. And, uh, and when you're in college, of course, you're on your own. You can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but I was in with, uh, with a group of guys and, and some were with me in, in the, uh, in the ROTC program. And, and we would go to church every Sunday and, and we'd, you know, we'd, we'd go to church and then, you know, stop by and, and have a bite to eat someplace or, you know, kind of make a, a nice, you know, social event of it. And, uh, when I was in the fleet deployed on aircraft carriers, I spent, you know, several years of my life on gray mm-hmm. ships on the other side of the world. And, uh, and mass is also offered and it's offered on Saturday evening, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And, and I would, I would go. And, uh, let me talk more about that in a minute. Uh, I, I was always, uh, thinking about, uh, life and how fragile life is and how quickly it could end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, we can wait till later. We can talk now because a lot of people, don't think about this. And it's really the most important topic. Like you always hear, never talk about politics and religion. Honestly, those are some of the two most important topics in the Mm -hmm. world Mm because we're only here, you know, everybody's born, everybody dies. There's only two guarantees and what happens for the eternity after that. But nobody wants to talk about it, it seems anymore. And then the, uh, how we live our lives individually and then our family and our community and the country and the world, that is politics you know so when you were going to these services and when you were staying in the faith and what did that mean to you like inside the moving parts what was the motivation to do that like what significance did that to you have to you um if you do not go to church then you are going to be punished in eternity okay so and that's and that's uh 
that that is the, the wrong way to look at it that I've learned in recent years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you go because you want to go. You need to to be nourished to hear to hear the word and uh, and, and and live it and and receive uh, the graces through the sacraments. And uh, uh, so I, I think it was and maybe you know not. I had a wonderful childhood, but uh, okay, we're we're going to mass, and you better go, and you're not going to miss. And uh, okay, I'm going. And uh, again, that that is carried through. Now that the motivation is different, that motivation is more out out of love. I want to be there. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be there. I want to be there. So to clarify, you should make sure before you had the mindset, I have to be there. I'm in trouble with yes. God. Yes. But now you know the truth is it's grace and love and yes. going to church helps build us and strengthen us and grow us. Absolutely. Yes. And to glorify God, to a host of praise and worship and not just singing and clapping, but I mean, praise to God yes. and prayer, the house of prayer. Awesome. All right. So now you go to, you go through the ROTC program and you get your commission. Where does your life go from there? Okay. Pensacola, Florida. And, uh, and right away you're, you're in the auditorium there and there's, I don't know, a, a couple dozen other, uh, ensigns and second lieutenants in the Marine Corps and, and Coast Guard ensigns. We all start our journey here. And, uh, uh, Captain Bob Rasmussen. Who may be a familiar name to you? Yeah, actually, it is. And, uh, yes, and uh, well, Captain Rasmussen at the time was the commanding officer of Schools Command. Captain Rasmussen welcomed us and said, "All right, guys, you know you're you're here in flight school, and you had better apply yourself." I mean, you know, he was he was kinder than that about it, but uh, very quickly in in academics, uh, I realized, hey, these these grades really count. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and so so uh, we were introduced to this culture. Where, all right, you're gonna, you're gonna have to read the material ahead of time. You get a lecture on the material, then you're gonna be tested on the material. Mm-hmm. And, and you're competing against each other for, for what you wanna do. If you have dreams of, of flying a particular aircraft, uh, this is, this is where it starts. So you're, you're not telling me everybody wins and gets a trophy? No. <laughs> and, uh, but, but I will say this, that, uh, the, the, uh, the, there is an attrition rate in flight school. Uh, it, it's not as as big as people may think it is. By the time you get there, uh, you've been uh, you know vetted or evaluated. Uh, you know you're 21, 22 years old, and uh, okay, we we think that you have what it takes by your academic record and 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 your your you as a person to get through this program. Mm-hmm. And um, so if you if you apply yourself, then then you can. Uh, and 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 in the course of flight school, uh, you know some. Some guys, uh, you know, d- didn't apply themselves. And okay, that, it's, it's good to find that out now instead of, you know, being in an airplane, you know, down the road and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and not knowing what to do. Uh, um, but it, it's a very competitive program. And it was a, uh, uh, again, introduced to this culture of continual excellence. We'll talk about that later. I'm sure. I was going to ask you, I want you to define the culture, like the mentality and the culture, what you're dealing with. We'll, we'll pick up on that then. Okay. So keep going. Um, so January 1982, uh, I finished uh, you know, what we call ground school, all the survival training and, and uh, go out to Whiting Field and uh, start flying the T-34, which like the other airplanes I've flown in my career is, is no longer used. But it's a primary trainer. It's a, uh, a tandem Two-seat uh, single-engine prop. Mm-hmm. Today they fly the, the T6. It'll look very similar. And uh, so the instructor again, this this culture. 
All right, you come to the brief, Ensign Miller, what is the emergency of the day? And I had to spit that out verbatim. Okay, good, you passed that. Uh, all right, we're going to get into the airplane. This is how you get in the airplane. This is how you strap in. This is how you turn it on. All right. And, uh, and uh, so the instructor would, uh, would, would take off on the first flight and then, then hand you the controls. You've got it. And then go through some maneuvers. You come back and then you would talk about it. You would debrief. And every flight, every simulator throughout my entire career, even you know, far away from school, uh, you know, training never ended. But there was always a brief, this is what we're going to do. We'd go out and do it. And then we'd come back and we'd debrief it every time. And that is where the learning occurs. And, and this is how you, uh, that, that culture was introduced to me and, and all of us. And it's, it's, it's a very high-performing culture of teamwork and trust. Yeah, and talk about that teamwork because a lot of people think, okay, we are competing for spots, and so we can't help help each other. We can't collaborate. How did you guys? Work Great question, it? and we absolutely helped each other. You know, yeah, we, absolutely, we, we would have uh, you know in our in our in our BOQ rooms. Most of us lived in the BOQ yeah. uh, there. Whiting was like define BOQ, the, the bachelor officers' quarters. I'm sorry, so it was like a a, a dorm for us uh, mm-hmm. out at at NES Whiting Field and. And uh, there was a, a, a chow hall there, if you will, and so we we spent a lot of time together. It was like uh, it was like we're back in college. But uh, but yeah, we would uh, okay. What you know? What flight do you have tomorrow? Okay, I have my first precision aero flight. Okay, okay, I flew that last week with Lieutenant Schmuckatelli, and uh, and we did a loop over Navarre Beach. And it's really important that you do a clearing turn before that loop. Don't forget it because you know he I forgot, and and he <laughs> you know he let me have it. So okay, hey, thanks. You know, th- thanks for the gouge. And so that, 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 that would be an example of, of there, we're always helping each other with, with uh, techniques and, and, uh, and the procedures. And, and guys that, that were struggling, we, we wanted them to succeed. We all wanted to go through this together and, and be successful. And, um, so, yeah, it, it, there was competition, but absolutely teamwork. Yeah, and that's something that I don't care what business you're in or what profession you're in. There's a false um, mentality that people live by, that they think everybody's a competitor, everybody's an enemy, and I have to do my it, own that thing. That sadly is true. Yeah. And uh, I, um, it, it, does that occur in the military? And, and the answer is yes, but not very much. Mm-hmm. Um, it, incur, it occurs outside the military more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, if for the listeners um, hearing this th- – if this is your mentality, think about it. You may have had experiences that brought you to this point, or maybe you've just assumed this is how it is from television and false media. But the fact is, I know some of my greatest professional and personal successes were with people who were competitors, legit competitors. And we talked through things. Hey, how are you doing this? Or what are you doing to have the success? And the, the fact is, there's more than one pilot. There's more than one business that sells widgets, you know, so you can help each other. There's plenty of business, especially in our generation. We have the Internet. The world is at our fingertips. Literally, you can make podcasts and videos and you can send a package. I just sent a package to Australia for seven dollars and thirty five cents. Seven days for seven dollars. I'm like, come on, I can't deliver this myself across town for that price. So we live in an amazing generation. So and the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron. And that's exactly what you guys did in the military, and we all need to do today. You bet. And, and uh, so you, um, in a squadron, everything is competition. 
yeah. everything. And, and, and it's uh, from your, okay, there's obviously things like, okay, we're going to be dropping bombs today. We're going to practice that. And so uh, let's see who gets the, the best hit. Let's, let's bet before we even fly, you know, maybe a, a Coke bet or a quarter, you know, something like that, uh, who gets the best first hit or the best total hits all day long. And then uh, carrier landings. Oh my gosh, that you know, huge competition. Every landing is graded, and, and and you compete, you know, over time on 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 how well you do there. And absolutely, iron sharpens iron. In that, I mean, you you do not want to to be found wanting in in any competitive area. So you do what it takes. Uh, that said, and I've, I've written about this that you got all these these type A superstars in a in a squadron, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and so everyone can kind of stake a claim where, where Billy, uh, he, he, he bombs pretty well. Or, or Susie, you know, she, she does a pretty good uh, air-to-air uh, engagement. Uh, and, and Mikey over there, you know, he's pretty good uh, with, with his landing. So uh, everyone can stake a claim. Mm-hmm. And, and it also, it, it, that also keeps the egos in check. Okay, you know, you may be good in this area, but you're not as good as your squatter mate in another area, although that squatter mate can help you get better and, and vice versa. Yeah, and that's such good, so good. I, the first thing I thought of when you were, were discussing this was um, I – Love Sylvester Stallone, his movies, and the, I just think he's a talented, such a talented human. There's a lot of depth. Like Rocky's not a movie about boxing; it's about the man's struggle. Yes. And um, I remember watching several interviews with him, and he always refers back to that healthy competition between him and Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's like, you know, I come up with Rambo, he'd come up with Commando. You know, he'd go back yeah. and forth, and he's like, it would piss me off and push me. But it's not like. Yeah, at some points I think they actually did. He said, I hated them. But now they're like best friends because yes. it was a healthy struggle and they weren't going around being um, without integrity. They weren't purposely trying to hurt each other. They weren't purposely cutting each other's legs. So you weren't having people give you false information just to set you up for failure. No. It's, it's a complete teamwork and you all prosper. We all, that's right. And, and, uh, in, in my, in my community, I was in a, in a, in a carrier squadron, tactical squadron. It's almost always flying in a formation. Yep. Uh, two of us, four of us. Uh, sometimes uh, the formations are, are pretty big. In, uh, in in combat, often they are. But 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 typically there is a uh, a multiple of two or four, and then added to other multiples or two or four to to make you know sixteen, twenty six, thirty, whatever is mm-hmm. required. And uh, so we all have to be working together, doing our jobs. Again, this gets back to the preparation. And uh, the thorough preparation, the the uh, the debriefing, and then the debriefing at the end of it. I think um, people, when they learn that, are, are surprised because you know, going back to Top Gun, you know, Top Gun is okay. We're gonna you know kick the tires, light the fire. We're gonna jump in the jet, do an aileron roll off the cat, and then go. You know, and uh, it's it's not that way at all. It's uh, it's there's a lot of preparation, and oftentimes um, we'll we'll brief a flight, we'll go out and fly it. It might take an hour. And we'll come back and talk for a couple of hours about every aspect of that flight. And that, again, this is another huge life lesson that you're bringing out. The debrief. Okay, that's a military term, but that's something we should all be using in our life. Talk about that. That's something that I personally will reflect on daily and weekly. And, you know, we're coming upon New Year's. This is a New Year episode how to start the new year off, how to take that first step, how to those things we've been thinking, let's turn them into doing. 
But talk about the importance of the debrief or the, the reflection or evaluation, however you want to call it. Let's, let's really talk about that. What we are talking about here is constructive criticism, mm-hmm. which we all want. And companies, you know, they have, uh, they have surveys. You know, how, how did we do? And, and it's really valuable for companies to, uh, to have customers fill those surveys out so they can, they can get better. Constructive criticism. Now, there's a, there's a right way and a not-so-good way <laughs> to deliver constructive criticism. Uh, Finger-pointing, how could you have, I mean, you know, people's shields go right up, you mm-hmm. know, and that's, you know, they're, they're going to be defensive. But uh, constructive criticism, like in, a, uh, in the off-target rendezvous, a good technique is to get inside of the turn and, and align fuselages. And, and that's not personal. That's, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from an instructor, a, someone qualified, and this is also important, mm-hmm. a, uh, a qualified instructor to, to teach, and there can be qualified salesmen and qualified, you know, all kinds of civilian uh, positions to do that. So what you're basically and, saying is just whoever you're speaking with for advice, you don't want to ask a homeless it, person on how to invest. Exactly. So you got someone with that, uh, and again, we're, we're good about, quali- you know, written qualifications. You know, th- this mm-hmm. guy is an instructor. Mm-hmm. And, and has gone through the wickets, so you can you can trust that uh, that he or she is is going to do a good job as as meta meta standard. So that is where the learning occurs, and this is where the culture of excellence is is just magnified. It is found in aviation, in the military. It's uh, it is found in special forces, mm-hmm. in the military. Um, my understanding is uh, other other communities of the military not so much. Um, and, and to their detriment, it's, it's a cultural thing. It can be learned. Uh, and I've, I've taught civilian companies this culture, change their culture. It can be learned. Yeah. And that's something you do, which we'll get into is you do consulting and you do, um, also a defense consultant, but you also do individual speaking and corporate engagement. Organizational. Yes. Yes. But for, for the listeners, the debrief can be on your own. What went well today? What went badly today? How can I fix this tomorrow or once a week? I mean, this isn't something you need. It's great and better to have a group, to have a qualified feedback. But would you agree that this is something we can do on our own, just in reflection? Um, yes, if, uh, and again, in, in the culture that I was in, we're, we're so hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because you, you want to be perfect. You want to be right on altitude, right on airspeed. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you're... When you land on the ship, you don't want to miss, you know, and, and, and you, there, there, there's misses and misses, you know. That's, yeah. That's, uh, but um, so so there is that aspect. But uh, but there was always a debrief. And, and sometimes, Dave, it might be from a junior lieutenant. I was a squadron commanding officer, and this is very typical. And I would land on the ship and I'd go back to the ready room and a lieutenant would evaluate my landing. Now, I did this when I was a lieutenant. I did this, too. And, and I would I would debrief senior officers on, on their landing. But, uh, so, you know, here I am and I'm a, I'm a, you know, the old squadron CEO and I've been landing on carriers since this Lieutenant was playing with matchbox cars. in the dirt. <laughs> And, uh, but I, but I would listen and, and everyone in the bedroom was watching, you know, okay, here's, here's the, the CEO getting debriefed by this Lieutenant. And, uh, and I would say, okay, good. Well, thank you very much. You know, thanks for, thanks for evaluating me. And, and I, yeah, that's your evaluation. I agree with, or if maybe I didn't agree with, well, I, I, uh, uh, th- this is what I saw in the cockpit. But, but again, thanks for coming by, and we'll see you tomorrow. And, and uh, so when, when the organization sees the boss take constructive criticism in public, 
Mm-hmm. That, that, that's a good thing. And, and then, okay, the, well, you know, if, if he's the boss and, and he can take constructive criticism in public, and it's not always perfect, then, then so can I. And, and so the, the ability to, uh, to take uh, and deliver constructive criticism. Delivering constructive criticism is not easy. <laughs> and there's, again, there's a, a right way and a, and a not so good way to do it. If you were to summarize from your experience, you've worked with thousands of people. How do you approach constructive criticism? Like, what, what do you feel is a good approach, especially with someone who doesn't accept it well? Well, um, okay, let's get back to the movie Top Gun. And, and here's Maverick Mitchell. <laughs> and, and he, he's You don't ma- just scream he, at him and he's, throw stuff? He, he, he's magic. So, so yeah, so there, there's the initial scene, uh, you know, the movie opens up and, and they get back to the ship and he, and he's yelled at by the commander. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, that, that, that's Hollywood. 18 but, coffees uh, later spilling, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, you know, t- tell me about the MIG some other time and I get out of here. You know, I, I, I tell you what, I was, uh, I was newly married. And uh, we went to see that uh, with with my with my wife at the theater, and uh, I think that we'd been married six seven months. And I think my first elbow to the ribs was uh, when I laughed at that scene in, in the movie theater. Oh, okay, I'm, so, I'm sorry, dear. I'll control myself the rest of this movie. But going back to that, how would you if if you were over Maverick, how would you give constructive criticism? Um, again, not personal, you know, third person. And, uh, but you, you can tell if someone is buying it and, uh, and if they're, you know, let's see, you know, arms crossed, you know, sullen, you know, scowling at you as you're, as you're, you know, const- uh, delivering this criticism then, uh, and then, and, and this, this is rare, but it does happen. Okay. Now it's the, it's the, I'm the instructor and, and you're the student and this is the way it is. And you better get on board with the program. And, and in my career, I got that. Mm-hmm. There were times when I, you know, my senior officers need to say, you had better get on board. And, and I'm lifelong friends with those guys today. Mm-hmm. They, they did me a favor. Tough love. Tough love. And, and sure, you know, parents do this. Mm-hmm. Parents that, you know, you know. Good parents eat, do it. G- g- good, good parents. Do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You know, eat, eat your vegetables. You know, uh, when I, um, you know, mind your manners, you know, chew with your mouth closed, all those little things. And, and you, you harp on, on little kids mm-hmm. and it's going to pay dividends down the road. Yes. Yep. All right. Well, then let's keep continuing with your story. So you're actively now finishing well, up the program. I got my wings in August of 1983. Okay. And, uh, in Meridian, Mississippi. And I was chosen to fly the A7 Corsair II in Jacksonville, Florida. And this is a, uh, a single seat dive bomber. Uh, you know, Vietnam era. Um, again, it's a, it's a dive bomber. It could do jack of all trades. Uh, it, it did a lot of stuff. It was a, uh, but it was, it was a difficult airplane. It was a challenging airplane. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, uh, it was, um, unforgiving. The, uh, the engine power response, you know, just, there, there's some other aspects of the way it flew. Uh, the cockpit layout was, was not great. Not like today's cockpits where everything is on your, your, your throttle and stick. You've got, you know, all kinds of, of, uh, of buttons and controls there that, that are going to help you. you every, everything you need that's important is in <laughs> front of you on the instrument panel and, and not by your, your left or right hip where you have to be head down. And so, um, so it was a handful for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in Jacksonville, Florida, and, and and going through the program, and and uh, had had a slow start, but again kept at it, and and uh, 
the, the light bulb came on as, as far as uh, as far as bombing with it. it uh, you know, at first I wasn't very good, but then toward the end I, I got better, able to deliver, you know, the practice ordinance that we use. But then came the ship, mm. and now for for all of us, this we're talking day and night carrier landings. And night carrier landings, and this is. Uh, and before you go on, because yeah. you're assuming some listeners have no concept other than TV, describe the size of a carrier, the size of a plane, and how you only got one shot at this. Yes. I mean, this is pretty serious. Today's carriers are uh, um, roughly 1,100 feet long. They're, they displace roughly 100,000 tons. Uh, they're they're, you know, they're they're huge ships. Although I've I've seen some cruise ships that are that are bigger. The cruise ships are they're making today, but uh, um, big ships. But then but then yes, you fly out to them, and it's a little ship. And there's mm-hmm. and uh, your landing area is uh, seven hundred and twenty five feet long. Seven hundred from from feet. ramp to to the end of the angle, and uh, the the distance for for takeoff. Is uh, uh, 330 feet. Your catap- so you're catapulted off a steam catapult, and uh, boom, you know, from from zero to 180 miles an hour in in, in two seconds, and and boom, off you go. And landing, uh, you'll touch down in an area uh, 40 feet by you know 10 feet left to right as far as line up, roughly, and you'll pick up a wire and you'll stop in 375 feet. So basically, going from 140 miles an hour to stopped in the length of a football field plus end zones. Yeah, and so you know, you're, there, there's no doubt you're aboard. Um, I had carrier landings in, in training uh, before I got my wings uh, aboard USS Lexington, that for many years was was here in, in Pensacola, mm-hmm. uh, flying the, the T2 and the A4, more museum pieces that I flew in training, um, but all daytime. And now flying this this A7, this this actual warplane. Uh, which could be unforgiving in some areas, uh, day and night, aboard Lexington, uh, wow. and, and uh, which was uh, the smallest carrier. It was, a, it was a World War II carrier, veteran of World War II, and uh, it, had, it had been modified. But uh, uh, Lexington, I recall, was uh, only 900 feet long compared to today's carriers, which were 1,100 feet. Wow. But but the landing area is still basically the same. Um, fear. There was always the the fear of uh, throughout flight school and, and training, uh, fear of failure, fear of okay not keeping up, and, and fear of looking bad, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you know failing a phase or or getting a, what we used to call a down. Uh, today they call them unsats, and so you you would get that, and then okay you're going to try this again, Ensign Miller. You you need more work in this area, and and, and you do it. It's humbling, and you know, but uh, you but this. Was uh, was night, and and this separates the adults from the children, if you will. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, so for me, it was. Uh, now I've read part of your book, and you're amazing with description and details. When you're saying the drastic difference between day and night, give a picture, a visual, yes. make a mental picture for our audience right now of what it's like to come upon the black ocean in a gray carrier, yes. and have to land in a football field. Uh, for me. Um, We'd flown out of Naval Air Station, Pensacola, and I flew out to Lexington, and I did my my day work, if you will. And I think I maybe half a dozen day carrier landings with the LSOs talking to me, and, and uh, uh, as I was as I was you know you know doing the best I could. So I uh, I landed aboard the ship, shut down on the ship, 
first time I did, well, no, I, I take that back. I guess I had no experience, but I shut down on the ship and go below and I got a debrief from the landing signal officers on how I was doing. And then, uh, briefing to go that night, got some food in the wardroom. So we briefed on what to do. And, and again, this is my last area of training. Once I finish this, uh, I go to the fleet and, and flight school essentially is over. I go out on the carrier deck that night and I could not believe how black it was inside of a basketball black. I can't see a thing. I've got my, my uh-huh. flashlight. I can just, you know, help me across. I, I needed help to get to my airplane, which was uh, parked on the, uh, uh, behind the island on the elevator. The tail of the airplane is out over the water. And it was just something I had never experienced. And you, you can smell your own fear. You know, this, this is adrenaline or, or whatever it is. And I'd never smelled it on me before, but I could smell it. Mm-hmm. I was, I was afraid. I'm not sure scared, but, but I think certainly that there were, there was fear. So I, I climb up in the cockpit and I'm strapping in and I'm, I'm 24 years old and I'm strapping in and there's a sailor next to me and he's helped me strap in as, as they do. And I, I muttered to him, like, I can't believe I'm doing this. And, and he was younger than me. He said, sir, you're going to be fine. You know, and so, you know, at that moment, you know, he was, he was a lot more mature than I was. <laughs> and so I, I don't know how I started it up, but I started up, taxied on the deck. Everything is foreign. All the, you know, the, I'm being directed by these yellow wands. You know, I, I can't see the person that's, but I see these yellow wands moving and they, they, they want me to do something. And that's pretty and, much all you can see, and, right? And that, that's all you can see. And, uh, so, so, on the catapults and just shot into an ink bottle of blackness. And you can't see a thing. There's no horizon. And, and, and the fear is, you know, what if you have a total electrical failure? Now everything's dark outside, everything's dark inside. Or you have an engine failure and, uh, and you have to, you have to eject. Now you have an ejection seat. That's an insurance policy, uh, which is a nice insurance policy. But, uh, so if you were to have to eject and, and this happens, happened to one of my friends once. And now you have this carrier bearing down on you. Um, and so, so there's, there's all kinds of things that, that can happen. Um, the, the weather that night was one mile in fog. So as soon as I got airborne, I was supposed to climb to 1200 feet and turn down when I think I went to 3000 feet. I was just so behind the airplane and, and finally got control of myself and got down to the right altitude and I flew a reciprocal course to the ship. And then I was, uh, as we call, hooked back in. They wanted me to turn back in to do my landing. So all of this is inside five minutes and I'm just behind the airplane. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I've never experienced blackness like this and I can't see a thing. I couldn't see the ship. And then I finally come down on a, on glide slope and, uh, about 20 seconds before landing, I could finally see the ship for the first time. There it is. Wow. Um, that was a wave off. <laughs> that was not a good pass on my part. So the LSO <laughs> said, you need to, you know, we're not even going to give you a chance. Uh, I, I, I know I was, uh, I was way too high. Uh, so I was able to come back around and kind of calm myself down. And then, and then get aboard. And it took me a couple of nights, which is typical for most mm-hmm. students, a couple of nights. And now, the, the way you're finding the ship and the navigation, is that instruments? Do you have audio it, it also is, or it's straight a great, up instrument? It's a great question. It is a mixture of instruments and voice. Okay. So, so, uh, so off the cat, I think, uh, I would, I would, you know, airborne, uh, <laughs> and uh, they'd say, okay, four zero four, take aim is one point two, one level turn down, and uh, heading uh, three six, you know, something, something like that. Mm-hmm. And they'd spit it out, 
and I, I'd, I'd say I'd say Roger, and and do that. But then also I have instruments in the cockpit, uh, the, the, uh, a needle that'll be pointing at the ship, give me a range to the ship at all times. It's called a, it's called a tachyon in the jargon that we mm-hmm. all know and love. Uh, but uh, but also listening to the voice commands. This is a ground controlled approach, very common in aviation. Mm-hmm. Uh, although today, quite frankly, in aviation, uh, much of it is is automated. But, uh, but still, you know, you hear, there's air traffic control that vector airplanes around. So that happens at the carrier as well. Okay. All right. Well, so that is the blackness as a listener. He's, that Kevin is describing that he had to land in and that was his first time. So the worst weather I ever recovered in at night was my first time. Your first one, one mile in fog. Wow, man, you're like describing one of my worst nightmares to be in the black ocean, like in the middle of the night with animal, like beasts surrounding me. That would be pretty much a terrifying way to die. The, uh, the, the second night, uh, I went, let's see, I think I went back to, back to Pensacola and then came back out the next day, did more day carrier landings and, and shut down on the ship again. And then they said, okay, you know, you need three more passes. To qual and, and so you know you need to work on this and so they told me what I needed to work on so I did my three passes and then I was taken to the catapult and I wasn't sure but you know I I didn't have really enough fuel to get back to NAS Pensacola but I was taken to the catapult they were giving me one more pass mm. and so I was on the edge as far as my performance so if I did good on this on the seventh night pass then I would I would qual and and no one told me that but I but I knew it and uh, and I made it. And uh, they said, uh, you know, you know, four one zero, you're a qual. What an incredible feeling of relief! So I went to the catapult again. They, they pumped me up with gas, and they uh, blasted me off again. Another black night, but I'm now I'm climbing, 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 ten, fifteen thousand feet, and I think I got above fifteen thousand feet, and then broke out of the clouds into a beautiful moonlit night. And it was such an exhilarating feeling. I mean, okay, I've I've qualled, I've made it, I've gone past this, and. And, uh, and this beautiful moon, all the stars, I'm away from that awful weather and that awful ship down there. And this is in and Pensacola. This is in Pensacola. So flew back to Pensacola and landed and, uh, just what, wow. Yeah. And then that's a perfect time. We're going to take a quick break, introduce the audience to our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dave Pasqualone, host of the Remarkable People podcast. And I am excited to introduce you to today's sponsor. The episode you're about to listen to is brought to us by Pam Heinold, Realtor and Broker Associate with Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, Pensacola, Florida. When my wife and I moved to Pensacola years ago, we were looking for a qualified real estate professional to help us find our new home. We had two kids, a new career, and not a lot of time. And having moved eight times in 10 years all over the country, We've experienced many, many realtors buying and selling homes at this point. So after moving to Pensacola and interviewing several agents, it was clear to both of us that Pam was the right choice. Her experience, credentials, knowledge, and skills truly are remarkable. And because of that, she's a top producer in the area year after year. Now, I understand that you only care about your home and what makes your life special and great. But that's just it. What makes Pam special is her ability to listen to you, understand what you want, and find you exactly what you're looking for so you have that greatness. If you're somewhere in the world right now looking for a primary residence, a vacation home, a rental investment, or anything else, call Pam. She can help you 
She's easy to work with and she'll help you find your dream home or even just a cool place to come and visit a couple times a year. You can surf, paddleboard, kayak, swim with the dolphins, parasail, whatever you can think of, we have it down here in the beautiful Pensacola Bay Area. So check out pamheinel.com. That's P-A-M-H-E-I-N-O-L-D.com. Or call her office at 850-232-2332. And when you call, make sure you tell her Dave said hi. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, so you finish your qualification. Now what? I went to attack squadron 82 aboard USS Nimitz. Okay. And uh, so I'm in, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, I have a pretty blonde girlfriend <laughs> that I met uh, at the Scenic Hills Country Club. And, and she also lived in Jacksonville. So we're, we're, we're dating. And, uh, but I, I get to the squadron. And uh, so now, okay, you're in the fleet. And uh, we're going we're gonna to get ready to go on a deployment next year for seven months. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we, we had a series of training detachments and I'm, I'm being introduced to, again, to day night carrier aviation. And, uh, but now I have a job in the squadron. I'm a division officer. I've got sailors that I'm responsible for and I don't know anything, but, uh, but I'm, I'm learning as, as, as all lieutenants do and, and, uh, um, just being a wingman, making mistakes, mm-hmm. having close calls and, and by the grace of God, uh, still here. Something I did throughout my career is I, is I would taxi to the catapult uh, or, or to the hold short on the runway. I'd say a little prayer. Mm-hmm. I'm all, always mindful of, uh, of what could happen. And, and my prayers were always answered throughout my career. Uh, I never was on a flight where one of us were lost. Wow. That's, and you were in the military for 24 years. 24 years. And how many were mission-oriented? Well, okay, that's a great question. Uh, I, I got a taste of combat uh, toward the end of my career over Iraq, mm-hmm. uh, but um, uh, the vast majority of my flights were not combat flights. It's every it's, mission is dangerous, but yeah, when I'm, right. but yes. I'm not de- demeaning that in any way, shape, or form. But I'm saying, but you had over a thousand flights. You said over a thousand carrier landings. Carrier landings, and uh, you know, thirty six hundred hours, thirty six hundred career hours. That that's typical for for a for a, a guy with a career like mine. Uh, a thousand carrier landings, though, is a little bit more than most. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the way my career worked out, and, and some would say, "Wow, you." You know, I had five extended deployments and a couple of mini deployments. Um, and then, but I always made the full workup training cycle mm-hmm. for every deployment. And on each of those, you know, you're gone for a couple of weeks at a time, three weeks at a time. And then, you know, and that would be over a period of months and, and they would add up. Yeah. And through all of this, you had a hundred percent success rate, zero loss. Yes. That's as, as far as, as the guys, the formations that I was in, the, the, the hops I was on with with my with my friends um, all made it back. Now that is not to say that death was was not part of of uh, of my uh, experience existence mm-hmm. uh, as a as a military aviator. I mean, it's there. Mm-hmm. It happens, and and I was introduced to it quite frankly uh, at Whiting Field in in primary. Uh, we all we all uh, you know lived out there as, as I said and. 
And I remember a guy, and, and, and this guy was older. He was, a, as I recall, he was a physician. Mm-hmm. And so he's going through and, and getting some, some taste of, uh, of flight training. And, uh, and, and one day he wasn't there. There was a mishap, and, and he was gone. Wow. Just like that. And, and, you know, again, I'm now 22 years old and, uh, wow, this, you know, this, this is serious. And, and I knew that it was, but when, when, when a, a, someone that you, you, I don't really know him, but I remembered him. And again, he's, he's 27. He's an old guy, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, but then, then gone. And, and that happened, uh, throughout my career from time to time that an airplane wouldn't show up. Mm-hmm. It would be a, a guy that I knew, or a very, very close friend, gone. Mm. And and uh, in in my career, over twenty that that wow. were uh, I, I can think of um, that, and, and not counting nine eleven, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, uh, obviously a, a dark day uh, at the Pentagon. Uh, but but anyway, yeah, it 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 was. Uh, it was there. And so again, I mean, I, uh, as far as uh, the fragility of life, maybe that's the wrong word, but, but, uh, but life can end when, you know, we know not the day nor the hour. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was always, always thinking, okay, I, I better be paying attention. I better, you know, not be doing stupid stuff and, uh, and, and going to church regularly and, 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 and saying my little prayer. Thank, and again, for the grace of God. And I had, I did dumb stuff and I, I had close calls. Um, but was uh, but was by by the grace of God, I'm here. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Let's go back to that before you move forward. Um, let's talk about a failure, if you don't mind. Like, yeah, during this period of life, you said you had failures and you're learning, and we all are. If we're not learning and failing, we're not doing something right. But what's a failure that set you up with a life lesson that you carried through to this day? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, 1985, uh, USS Nimitz were off Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'd been in the squadron for, uh, four or five months and, and, uh, we're, we're, we're on our deployment now. We're doing a little bit of training before we go over to the Mediterranean. And, uh, it, it was pretty, uh, pretty difficult training. It was a, uh, uh, it was like the ship's final exam. And, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, sleep involved. It's just work, 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 fly, fly, fly. And, uh, so I, I went flying once and I was pretty run down and, and tired and uh, mismanaged my fuel. Oh. Uh, long story, uh, and I'm, I'm flying as a wingman, uh, so, but, but I'm responsible for the airplane that I'm flying. And uh, so I can't, I can't blame anyone else but me for not managing it better. But we got back to the ship. Personal it, accountability. We, pers- yeah. At oh, the yeah. end of the day, you're responsible for you. I'm yeah. responsible for me. And for all the listeners out there, what Kevin just said is crucial. Yes, there's a team that should have been monitoring that, but Kevin didn't blame anybody. That's an excellent leadership skill. Well, I'll tell you, we, we got back to the ship, and, and the recovery was taking a long time, and, and fuel was dwindling. And so uh, I was I was giving my lead hand signals about my fuel state, and, you know, okay, got it. And then uh, so the fuel was really going down, and then I, I did a, a, a serious sin, which is I went on the uh, the auxiliary radio frequency mm. and and spoke on the radio and I'm a wingman but I I spoke hey hey I am low on fuel yeah I know We're, so we 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 uh, we came in for our landings and I dropped my landing gear and I had an unsafe nose gear indication 
And I've got minutes of fuel left because I was pulling a fast one. I, you know, I'll, I'll be good. I, I mean, I've got 60 traps on the ship. I'm good. I can land on it. I've, I've broken the code. And, uh, so, oh my gosh. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing, you know, very quickly trying to, to do some procedures to get that nose gear indication to show, but it's, it's not, it's a bad indication. So I fess up and I, I tell the ship, I'm right next to it. Okay. Here I am. I've got minutes of fuel left and I've got an unsafe nose indication. And, and so now the ship is at, at general quarters. We got this, uh, l- this nugget lieutenant here, nugget, uh, <laughs> new guy. Uh, with this indication. So they had me fly by the ship, which I do. Okay, your nose gear appears to be down. It appears to be. And, and <laughs> Not so, locked into place, but it appears it, it, to be it, down. As far as we're concerned, it looks like, okay, good. And I, I just turned, I just turned back to the ship and uh, I cut everyone out of the pattern. I rolled back in and there was uh, an airplane that was still in the landing area. It wasn't out, it wasn't out of the way yet. Wave off. I turned downwind again. And now I, now I'm flying my own airplane and I'm making my own decisions. Mm. And so they say, uh, we're not ready for you. Extend. So, you know, fly away from the ship and we'll tell you when you come back in. And so I'm in the cockpit and I've taken off my kneeboard thinking that I'm going to have to eject in a few minutes. Mm. And a light comes on in the cockpit that tells me that I've got three minutes of fuel left. Um, I turned back into the ship. I didn't even wait for them to call me. This is now or never. So I'm, I'm making my approach and I, uh, I cry. I, cross the ramp, and I go to idle, a cardinal sin, but I'm so light, and I, I've got to get aboard, so I go to idle, and then I go back to military, wham, I, I touch down and land. And my flight deck chief is there, and, you know, he's, he's you know, giving me a, a cheering, like, yay, Lieutenant Miller saved the airplane, but I knew a much different reception was waiting for me in the ready room. And uh, so, so I went down there, and there was no one in the ready room but my commanding officer. He was waiting for me. Oh, and before you go on, I'm feeling like anxiety from you telling this story because it's so intense. But I think all of us have driven a car on the ground where we're safe, and we're like, "Oh man, I need to make it to the gas station." Yeah. And picture that times what ten thousand? What you're doing? If, Life, death, or you know, two million dollar? You're gonna, you're gonna. Uh, had I missed for or been waved off. Uh, I would have ejected next to the ship, and there goes a you know multi-million dollar warplane. The chances are I would have survived. It was a beautiful, clear day, and I would have been picked up by the helicopter right away, and my life would have been absolutely changed. But uh, so you so, get to the room, get in the ready room. There's a CO. Sit down, yes sir. Uh, nice landing. Now what the any this wind? What were you doing out there? And you know, and, and I, I hadn't shaved in a couple of days and I'm bleary eyed and, uh, sounds like, yeah, I can excuse, I guess. But, uh, but, uh, you know, come with me. So I follow him. We go to the Air Wing Commander's Office and everyone is there. Everyone's in the Air Wing Commander's Office. Usually everyone, and, all and, the higher up. The, the whole, all the staff there, cause, you know, this, this, mm-hmm. this guy's gonna get yelled at here. We, we wanna watch this. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so I'm standing there in, in front of the Wing Commander. And he said, and he's, he's holding his thumb and forefinger, you know, a quarter inch apart. He says, Kevin, you came this close to losing your airplane and maybe your life. And my CO said, he's grounded, CAG. And I was sent to my room. Essentially, I'm 25 years old now, sent to my room without any supper. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm so, I'm like, oh my gosh. And uh, it, it was bad. The next day, I go into the ready room. And, and, and people are kind of, kind of avoiding me. You know, this is, this is pretty serious, but, uh, I, I see that, uh, I'm on the flight schedule. So get back up on the horse. Mm. 
But you learned your lesson? Yes, sir. Okay. Don't do that again. And, and so I would tell that story throughout my career. On every deployment I made, I told that story to, to the new guys come up, including when I was a, a commanding officer. Mm-hmm. I would tell what I did as a young lieutenant. And, and yes, the personal responsibility, you're flying the airplane, do the right thing, fess up. Yes. So to the listener, <clears throat> you may not be a naval aviator, but we can carry these same principles into our own life. Go through the checklist of what should be there. Make sure we're paying attention to what we need to do in our details and our personal responsibility and take responsibility for our own actions. Is that correct? Am I yeah. missing anything? I, you know, I, I, uh, I pulled a fast one. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, uh, I, I was in extremis and I, and I should have warned someone so that they could have, a, a tanker could have been sent to me or, or any number of things that they could have cleared out the landing area. Okay. You've got priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't do that. Well, I'm glad it worked out. You're here to tell and, a story. And, and, in years, uh, just, just last year, I, I saw the uh, uh, at, at the museum here. I saw the uh, a man who was the air boss at the time, and I, I probably gave him several gray hairs that afternoon. Uh, but you know, he, I said, "Hey, thank you so much." I hadn't seen him in all those years, and he said, "Oh gosh, that's so good to see." You. And we, we we can laugh about it now. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Sorry. Right, so pick up with your story. So now you have a career. And you're doing a typical great. career and made a couple of deployments, uh, transitioned to the FA-18 Hornet, which was a joy to fly. And gosh, it was just, you know. Had, and briefly had, describe the differences in the aircraft. Uh, the FA-18, the two afterburning engines, it could turn on a dime. It was equally at home dropping bombs in, in the air. And so now I'm an instructor uh, in, in the FA-18. So I learned how to fly it and then I started instructing in it. Uh, the, the, the cockpit was, was, was easy to, to manipulate and I've got all this information. It was just terrific. And, uh, I'm a landing signal officer, so I'm teaching, uh, day night carrier landings. So again, through my experience now, I'm an instructor and I'm teaching guys how to land on the ship at night primarily. And, uh, um, high standards. You gotta have high standards. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're pushing you and, uh, you know, the, some guys, you know, struggled with it, so they they get extra time, and and you know, we we wanted everyone to get through. I mean, you know, these guys had their wings; millions had been spent on their training, and we don't want to wash them out. We want to get you through, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 we did. And uh, um, this was uh, right during the time of Desert Shield, which then became Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. And that was during the nineties, correct? It, right in the late nineties, exactly early, early yeah, nineties, nineteen ninety, and then then ninety one, and. Uh, um, at that time, uh, I was assigned to a carrier. So I left my, my shore duty instructor job and I was assigned to a carrier, the only Atlantic fleet carrier that did not participate in Desert Storm. <laughs> so, so I watched Desert Storm on, on TV, but, but many, many of, of my friends were, were there and, and, uh, uh, and served, uh, and, and lost a couple. Mm-hmm. Just, and just, just shocking. And, you know, how, you know, gosh, the last guy. So good and such a such a great guy. How how can this happen again? It, it and in we can't explain it. How mm-hmm. how God how God works that way. And uh, you, you struggle with it. And and uh, we put on our our blue uniforms and and go and you know to the memorial service. Mm-hmm. There's it, it's there's it's very rare that there's a body in in uh, in military aviation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll never forget our, our fallen comrades. Yeah. 
All right, so that brings up another story when you were at the Pentagon, and it was 9-11. So kind of bridge your career between that point and 9-11, because you were at the Pentagon on that horrific day, correct? Yes. And luckily, I'll let you tell the story. So bridge us to that point. Throughout the 90s, I flew Hornets in, mm-hmm. uh, in Jacksonville and uh, rose through the ranks and, and uh, commanded a squadron. Um, and this is in the late 90s. And uh, wonderful years. Just, mm-hmm. And just uh, had three children during this time. And, and uh, it, was, it was just, uh, you know, squadron life was, was wonderful. It was a, uh, a very close-knit, tight-knit, lifelong friendships. Wouldn't trade it. But, uh, you know, the flying days end. It's a, it's a young, younger man's, younger <laughs> woman's game now. And uh, all roads lead to the Pentagon. And uh, I went to War College in in, uh, in Rhode Island, and then went back to the Pentagon, and uh, so I was I was there on on nine eleven. I was uh, I was a Pentagon staffer. I'm pushing paper, and you know, okay, gosh, I sure wish I was in a flight suit again. But you know, you you, you adapt. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll get to wear a flight suit again one day. Um, but uh, September eleventh, beautiful summer day. And, and life was pretty good. We had recently come back from a from a family vacation with many of our our squadron friends, and and uh, so so one of the guys says, "Hey, you see what's happening in New York?" And so there there's a TV on the office. So I went to the TV and looked, and you could see the North Tower burning. My first thought was, "Okay, this is an accident." Mm-hmm. And and but how it's such a I don't get it. But uh, what, what's going on here? So I went back to my desk. And then another guy said, hey, they hit the second tower. And so you go in and you see the, the airplane going into the second tower. And there's no doubt. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at my boss saying, this means war and we're next. And 15 minutes later, I'm at my desk again, just, just thinking about this, like, what is going on? And simultaneously, a shock wave came from my left to right and it moved papers on my desk inside an office building. And I kind of bounce in my seat from the vibration. And wow. you hear this, mm, just like that. And we, we got up, looked at each other. Within a minute or two, we could start smelling jet fuel, a familiar smell. Mm-hmm. We turned off our, our machines and got our stuff. And, and it was like evacuating a sporting event. It was uh, just, uh, you, you know, the Pentagon is, is like a like spokes of a wheel. So we kind of went down this, this giant hallway uh, to, to the center of the building from where we could get on another spoke to go out of the building. And uh, orderly evacuation and, and not, but just like, okay, what, what has happened here? And we go outside and, and just a black plume from, uh, from the southern part of the, of, the, of the building. Again, something I've seen before from an aviation fuel fire. And uh, we found a three-star admiral who was not our admiral, but, you know, we're, we're, we didn't know what to do. And uh, so we gather around him. And uh, at the same time, we hear a boom. And, and, and you've seen this. Uh, this is where, where part of the floors collapse mm-hmm. in the burning part of the building. And so he, he, he just goes disperse because, you know, again, he didn't know what to do. There's no textbook on this at this yeah, point. It's, it's just, you know, the South parking lot is just pandemonium. At that time, a cop says, get out of here. Another one's coming. And this, I, I believe, is Flight 93 that, that we know. 
that mm-hmm. was that was headed toward Washington. So uh, one of us had a car. Most of us uh, would commute to the building mm-hmm. through the bus or the metro. And uh, one of us had a car, so we just kind of piled in. And one of us had this new thing called a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. And so we're uh, we're heading on on the Shirley Highway south of the Pentagon, and F-16s are are flying just a couple thousand feet over, and we're listening to New York. We're listening to the radio, and the World Trade Center is destroyed. We can't believe it, and we're trying to call home, but we're like, oh my gosh, gone, collapsed. Finally, got through to uh, to my family. And then finally got home about three hours after we left, just, just, you know, inching along on, on the traffic out of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, the next day I put on my white uniform and went to the Navy annex, which was up on the hill at the time. Pentagon is still on fire. And, uh, and most people don't understand that. It wasn't like a one and done. I mean, it right. took a, how long did it take before that fire went out? I, I, I would think 36 hours, maybe. There was still smoke that morning as I as I showed up. Yeah, it was a significant uh, impact. It wasn't yes. like, oh, because oh, yes. oh, people have in their mind, oh, a plane crashed and it's over and done. Oh, oh yeah. You know, like The Rock, he can solve a whole mystery in two hours and save the world. Yeah. It's not like that in real life. But uh, that afternoon, I, I drove to Alexandria to the family of uh, a guy that uh, that I worked with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was with that family for, for the next several months to 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 help them do whatever they needed, um, just to, to be there. Uh, you know, we we take care of our own, mm-hmm. and uh, we, uh, you know, through the, all all the process, uh, we were we were burying our shipmates uh, into two thousand and two. Uh, wow. There's the the identification process, and then uh, you know all, um, but but going to funerals and and wearing. Wearing our our, uh, our blue uniforms to funerals was uh, pretty much the rest of 2001. The country was so unified. Church that weekend, mm-hmm. we had to park three blocks away. Mm-hmm. It was just absolutely jammed, hanging from the rafters. The next week, not so much. The next week, not so much. Next week, probably normal. Mm-hmm. But but initially, everyone went to church. Yeah, and it melted away. But and then uh, the, the country was so unified, you know, in Washington. But and and there was uh, overhead Washington at night. You would hear fighters flying, you know, combat air patrol over Washington and New York. And mm-hmm. they did this for many months. And you know, I, I would wake up in the wee hours, and you would hear a fighter engine. And, and fighters have, you know, deep rumbling engines different than airliners, and you can pick up on it. It's like a, a mother hearing a baby, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, and that, that, that finally ended. We were unified uh, as a country, I, th- I think, for six months, and then it melted away. Yeah, and you bring up, like a, you, you said this a couple times and brings up a great point. You know, you're in service, and you saw combat, and then you're on the only carrier out of the whole, f- like, military that doesn't go to Desert Storm, yeah, and, and people would think, well, aren't you lucky? Aren't you lucky that you didn't have to, to go? But, but no, we wanted to go. You're willing. You're, You're willing and ready. to go. And, and we, we, you know, all that, all that years of training and yeah, we, we wanted, uh, to, to, to be involved. And, and, uh, people don't understand that. Certainly your, your family, oh, gosh, we don't, we don't want you to go and, and be in combat. Mm-hmm. And, and so, okay, so you don't, uh, I, I don't think that, that you have to willing your, you know, 
you know, bend over backwards to put yourself in that position. But if your unit is going, then absolutely you're, you're going to go and, and want to go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, I, I got a, a taste of that at, at, at the end of my career, the little, little, uh, a little skirmish uh, with the Iraqis in the late nineties. We were doing no fly zone patrols over Iraq throughout the nineties and into the two thousands. Mm-hmm. So it's been a lot of time. Bosnia was going on during this time. And so lots of, lots of time, no fly zone patrol. What was combat like for you? Um, it was, uh, cause again, is it movie or is it, yeah, this is it, real, it's a, man. It's a, it's a great, great question. Uh, very confident. Uh, the first, first flight, I was a, a squadron commanding officer and, and led an air wing strike. So a couple dozen airplanes and, and I'm the lead. And, uh, we never flew better formation, never had better radio discipline. I mean, everyone is on the game. And this is the wee hours of the morning, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, Combat for me as a military aviator is silent. Mm. It's just like you're in an airline seat and you can hear the ambient noise of the airplane. You're looking out the window as the airplane floats through the sky. Now I was in my, my cocoon. I can see, you know, 180 degrees all, all around me in my little canopy. I can hear the engine, but you would see lights just like, uh, like flash bulbs going off or mm. maybe just a, a spray of light. And, and this is AAA, anti-aircraft artillery, and, and they're shooting at you. Mm. They, they could hear you coming, and they just start shooting up into the air. But again, it's silent. You can't hear it. In the movies, you know, you'll, you'll hear it. Um, but, you know, th- there it is. I have a, another impression of, of being over the target area, and my bomb is, is on its way to the target. And I can sense lights going off underneath me, just, just muffled. And, and we're on, it's night, mm-hmm. and we're on night vision goggles. Which, 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 you know, uh, um, amplify light. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can, you can kind of sense that. And we were, uh, they obviously missed. Okay. But, uh, but yes, uh, silent. I mean, in your mind, is it your training prepared you? You're just kind of going on training. Training prepares you. And so you, uh, you fight like you train. Mm hmm. And you can't just say, uh, all right, well, once we get into combat, we'll just, we'll just suddenly amp up our game. And it doesn't work that way. You have to have, have practiced, practiced in-flight refueling, if nothing else, practiced, uh, rendezvous, flying formation. By the way, talk about in-flight fueling. That's something some people have never even heard the oh, concept yeah. of. Yeah. Like you're talking, explain that to people because this isn't just parking kindly at the uh, gas station and filling your tank. Explain what you're discussing here. Yeah. Uh, again, routine operation uh, for us, typically uh, uh, off the catapults, you go overhead the ship and you rendezvous on the tanker. It is day night. So what is a tanker? Uh, oftentimes it's, uh, it's another carrier airplane and it's outfitted with a fuel tank that has a little hose at the end of it. And this hose is paid out into the airstream. It's a basket. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I have an in-flight refueling probe on my aircraft, so I'll extend that. And, and I, I fly my probe into this basket, and we're going about 250 miles an hour. In, 250 in miles but, an but hour. But it's all relative, so you just <laughs> kind of stabilize behind, and then just kind of a little bit of power, and you fly the probe into the basket, and it takes fuel. Now, sometimes uh, the air is turbulent, and that basket is kind of kind of moving around, and in a, in a couple, you know, left, right, up, down, and so you kind of you're you're flying your airplane, kind of doing your best to to put your probe there, and then you kind of give it a shot, 
and uh, you you might hit it good, or you might uh, might miss, or maybe lip it. You hit the edge of the basket, and then the probe comes off, and now the basket is flailing in the in the in this 250 mile oh. an hour slipstream. It goes left and right before it stables out. Uh, you so you know you and the in the receiver are playing. You kind of push push away and and get away from that while the uh, oscillating basket. But you got to try again because that's where the fuel is, and, and fuel is time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get your fuel, uh, you're gonna you're not gonna be able to, to participate in, the, in whatever you have to do. Um, um, it, it's it beca- it's a routine thing, and and we do it day and night, and and it's it's a, it's a lot of fun. But when you really need gas, there are a few times in my career that I really did, and uh, okay, I've got to I've got to do it now. Um, and see to a knob, like to an outsider like me, that's just mind boggling. You have two giant. I mean, these aren't like little Yugo cars here. I mean, you have two giant vessels in the sky, flying very close r- relationally. I mean, very close, two hundred and fifty miles an hour, with two tubes connecting, yes. and you're filling up in the sky and, and at night. At night, at night, and at, and at night you you see just a cluster of lights. You can't see the airplane, but just some cluster of lights. And uh, you you watch your altitude, and and you just join on this cluster of lights, and then it it kind of shows itself into uh, an outline of an airplane, and and uh, uh, I'll, I'll signal to the pilot with a flashlight. He'll signal to me. There's nothing said on the radio, and and get the fuel you need, and and uh, away you go. Man, that's amazing. And so so all of that, all of that precision and 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 capability, it it begins in training. It begins with the brief. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you, I always heard you play how you practice, but you fight like you train. And again, all of our listeners, you don't have to be a naval aviation expert to be living these out. Um, I, I want to go back that, to that, though. Again, you had the willing heart, and so many men and women in the military have the willing heart to go to combat. You, you're just the hero on the inside. But what I keep observing is... God doesn't cause heartache and pain. He might allow it for a purpose, but he's not causing anything. And when people say, well, why did this happen? It's yeah. hard. We've all yeah. had hard, horrible things happen to us. Right. But that's because of Satan and the sin in the world. That's not because of God's will and his love. Right. So I want to make sure our listeners can differentiate that because the the cause of pain isn't God. The, the peace is from God. The pain is from the sin and the evil in the world. But thinking about this the one carrier that doesn't get deployed <laughs> you're in the pentagon while it's attacked and now you're sitting here we're drinking coffee together and and hearing your story uh, it's just god has his hand on you and has a purpose absolutely so yes. talk about this you go from and we're gonna just for the sake of time you go from the military to consulting is there anything specific you want to talk about that, or do you, you want know, to move I, forward? I finished my career uh, in legislative affairs, so okay. uh, I, I wore a, a suit, a business suit, uh, and I would uh, work with Congress. I'd spent time on Capitol Hill with staffers, professional and, and personal, uh, and help them with their naval aviation questions. That was my portfolio, mm-hmm. and, and we would go to to factories where ships and airplanes are built. Or uh, would, would take them on on tours of, of bases and squadrons and, and such, and, and really enjoyed it. And then from and, there, and then so on. So I retired. Oh, okay, okay. 
In on, on Monday morning, I, uh, after my, my Friday retirement, I, I went to work for a defense consulting company hey, wearing, wearing the same suits. And, and, uh, and now it's uh, uh, clients, constituent clients that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that would make a, a widget that, uh, that the, the military would need. And so I, I would help them to, uh, to market that uh, to, to the fleet and business development. And um, I enjoyed that. Still working with the same staffers to, you know, is there is there uh, is there money in in the budget R and D money to to test this widget? Um, gotcha. That that was a, that was a fun uh, experience. People think that uh, oh my gosh, that, you know, and what we're talking about is lobbying. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about are are plus ups, member ads, mm-hmm. and are uh, some would say pork. This is pork. Mm-hmm. But but the way it works is uh, the, the Congress has an allotment for the military. Okay, military, here's this you know multi hundred a billion dollar chunk of money. This is yours, and you are going to work within that that huge chunk of money. But sometimes programs they can't uh, they they can't spend all the money that they've been given in a given year. Just the way it works. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple three five million that is available out there for projects like let's let's test a uh, a new uniform. That's kind of non-microbial. It could act as a bandage. So, like you're wearing a bandage. Mm-hmm. You know, could this be helpful on the battlefield? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. So that, that's that's just one example, and, there, and there's many. Oh, absolutely. How, how this works. And so I did that for five years uh, um, before I came down here uh, as a not-for-profit executive at the Naval Aviation Museum Foundation. Yes, and for those of you who have not been to the Navy, the Naval Aviation Museum, it's beautiful. But Kevin actually had a huge influence in starting an amazing program. So I want to talk about that, and I want to get into where you're at today. Because everything to date that we've listened to is in that same line. From nine years old, I want to be a pilot, and you've stayed in Can't that realm, in that world. <laughs> and the listeners don't know yet, but now you have this other side. So go to the Naval Asia Museum, talk about what you're able it to accomplish a, there. It was a, a, uh, an exciting time. Uh, the centennial of naval aviation is going on, and, and, and the, the museum is the, the third largest aviation museum in the world. And it's beautiful and, and it's, well done. If you haven't been there, it's gorgeous. It, it, absolutely. It is a, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people a year visit it, uh, close, close to a million. You could round it up to a million. I think we go um, at least at least twice a year sure. on a bad year, I and mean, sometimes four times. There's, there's always something going on there, and, and uh, it was it was a... Um, for for a passionate guy like me, a, a terrific place to work. During this time, this thing called the National Flight Academy was under construction, and and I get I got there while the building was under construction. And this is a building next to the museum that uh, it, it's a weird looking building, but <laughs> but inside it it looks, sounds, smells like the interior of an aircraft carrier, and this it has simulators inside it. And, uh, you know, radar control rooms and briefing rooms, if you will. And what it's designed to do is to imbue 7th through 12th graders with STEM principles, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, using the wonder of flight. And in this case, um, with, with naval aviation as the, uh, uh, as, as the, uh, the, the background here. Um, so the, the way that works is that, uh, Campers, if you will, again, mm-hmm. seventh through twelfth graders will spend a week there, and uh, there's there's a, there's a cost for that, obviously. But uh, but the the money's made 
will go to support the Naval Aviation Museum to tell the story of naval aviation. So that's how the uh, the, the Navy uh, has allowed this to be built. And uh, when I was there, the building was complete, but now we have to have a program. Mm-hmm. So uh, the University of West Florida was a partner in this, and also a company in Orlando uh, that that was involved in, in theme parks and the, the entertainment industry. Uh, and so, so these these are very creative people. So we learn through stories. So how what story are we going to use to to get the, the 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 kids excited about this? So they they looked at this building and and said, I know we'll, we'll make it a spaceship. Okay, and and we can we can do this and that. That's a marketing and, person and, talking, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, so the those of us on the foundation, no, no, this is you know this this, this is this is an aircraft carrier, and, and the missions are, are not combat missions. They're not. Mm-hmm. But here's an example: uh, search and rescue. So I would be in a meeting and say, well, we you know we could have a, a fishing boat is lost, uh, a father and, and children is lost, and, and they're out in the Gulf of Mexico, and we got to find them. So we could, we could have a latitude and longitude, and we could give each, um, each simulator crew a, a 30-degree wedge, let's say from 360 to 030, 030 to, to 060, out to 100 miles, and, and, and search that patch of water. And the creative guys are just writing this down. Oh, my gosh, this is terrific. Oh, yeah, we can do it. You know, and so, so I got to be part of the creative team. Using using my my understanding of of what you can do that's not combat to to excite people. And okay, let's go there. What did that trigger in you? That I'm taking this was a catalyst for today, correct? Um, yes, the, the creative juices. And and yes, I've I've been creative uh, all my life, beginning with drawing. And I would like to to draw stuff. And mm-hmm. and I I have an artistic ability that I've I've kind of let lapse, but. Uh, but that, that's one example. Writing is, is another one. And, and I knew that, that, you know, I'd certainly written professional things in the course of a career and, and some professional essays that were published, but, but all just the, the day-to-day administrative writing that you have to do and, uh, and was confident of, of my, my abilities there. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, I, I wrote scripts, plural, mm-hmm. uh, involving you know, ships colliding and sinking. There's there's fires that we have to put out. There's 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 this and that. And and were these and, true experiences, or are these based on? I, I is think, it fiction based on fact, or is it straight up I, fact? I think it's it's just. Uh, I think it's fiction based on. Okay, you know, do, do ships collide at sea? Yes, they do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Merchant ships. Mm-hmm. Okay, what if a merchant ship collided with a cruise ship? And now we have thousands of people that are at risk, and maybe the ship is sinking. They got to be rescued. Uh, the other ship is burning, and maybe we got to put out the fire. And, and so we have our our simulators that that we uh, that we built over there, and and these these simulators can do anything. And uh, so we would have again the 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 middle schoolers or high schoolers. They would say, okay, we have to fly this far. We have to carry this much uh, payload, let's say water, to put out the fire. Or we have to carry this much weight and people back. Do we have the fuel? How long will it take? How many trips do we have to make? All those, wow. remember all those fifth grade word, word problems, you know, a train leaves Chicago traveling west at, at mm-hmm. 60 miles an hour. You know, and, and I, I, I guess I did pretty good in those problems. Although at the time in fifth grade, I don't think I liked them. But, uh, but, <laughs> but aviators do those word problems in their head all the time with fuel, time, distance, 
mm-hmm. and and uh, and what have you. So uh, that's an example of uh, what we did. All right. So now you finish. That's a great, phenomenal program. It, you know, the, the the kids love it. Yes, they absolutely do, and and uh, the, it, it's unforgettable for them. It is teamwork, but it, it excites them about. Uh, science and technology, and, and maybe some of them will, will go into a STEM field. It it was not designed as a recruiting tool. People often think mm-hmm. that it is, and it's not. But uh, but you know you can you can go and apply yourself in school, and this this math can be pretty fun. Yeah, and what a great a great yeah, opportunity, yeah. great experience. You meet new people, and it's amazing. It's, it's a t- team against team, and it's all all fun competition. Yeah. They they have their little little uh, colored shirts that they wear. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they they love it. It's a huge success. So now you finish at the Naval Museum, and now you are facing. All right, I have a passion that I love, and I got to fulfill through my life. I'm a creative guy, and I enjoy this. Those projects of the Naval Aviation Museum that that kind of sparked that creativity and, and lit it back up inside of me. Now what happens? Well, after I retired in 2005, a friend said, you should write a novel. And I, I waved him away, get out. <laughs> and he put his finger on my chest, no, you need to write a novel. So I thought, you know, maybe I will. Maybe I'll write a novel or I'll write a story. And, and uh, you know, th- the kids can have it if nothing else, but we'll see. So over the course of, uh, of several years, I would write, I would, I'd just in a frenzy on the weekend, 7,000 words. And then I would put it away for months and pick it back up. I got to, I got to work on this. And about four years after I started, I, I sprinted to the finish. And when I was done, I thought, wow, I've really got something here. Mm-hmm. And so I started shopping it around. And, and I had a, a friend, uh, Warren Carroll, who had uh, written a, a naval aviation trilogy. And so he kind of gave me some pointers. And I shopped it around New York. The way it works is you got to get an agent first. You can't go right to HarperCollins. You, okay. uh, you find an agent to represent you that, that will take it to a publishing house. And so uh, you got to find an agent that does fiction, military fiction. We'll take a first-time novelist, you know, is, is open to that. So it's kind of kind of narrows the universe. But I would find them, and I would send them a query letter, and I'd pitch it. And, and oftentimes they would say, okay, send me some. Send me a chapter. Send me the whole thing. And uh, I would get feedback most of the time. I think they, anyway, I I got feedback and I said, okay, look, you, you have some ability, but this isn't for me now, or, uh, this, this needs work. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but they would almost always say, keep trying. Mm -hmm. So, but, but once you're rejected by an agent, you're rejected. So, so you got to keep finding new ones. In, In the meantime, I met some people through the foundation and then met someone through leaders to uh, that could help me find the right publisher and find an editor for it. Mm-hmm. That came together, and in the summer of 2014, Raven One was published. All right, yes. And that's when we met at Pensacola Leaders. Yes. It's a great, just for the listeners, it's the oldest networking association in Pensacola. It's for business, and Kevin and I were both there for different reasons, and that's actually how we met, so I'm very thankful for Pensacola Leaders. Okay, so you get Raven One. It all comes together. Raven wrote- One. So you go you go on Amazon, Amazon, uh, you know, Kindle Direct Publishing, and it's it's basically you hit enter on Amazon, and there it is. 
it, it's out there. Now, mm-hmm. certainly, you need to spend monies on editing on a professional cover, uh, mm-hmm. formatting. And I had formatting help through my publisher, uh, Jeff Edwards, at Brave Ship Books. And once we got it in the, in the right formats, you hit, hit enter, and it's there. And uh, so within weeks, reviews started coming in. And they were glowing, nice. positive, and, and I had no idea. And 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 they they came in review after review. This is incredible! What a story! And and Raven One is a story of a uh, uh, a pilot in a squadron in in the Persian Gulf, and he has a commanding officer who is terrific, and the second in command, the executive officer, is like a homicidal maniac. <laughs> and so there's there's that that dynamic there, and and it is a detailed look at, at squadron life, and and it is very detailed. And and some readers say, oh my gosh, the, you know, all, all this detail is uh, is kind of overwhelming. Although I I do give a glossary, but most readers appreciate it. Okay, you're, we're gonna we're gonna immerse you in this world that we've been, just been talking about. Mm-hmm. People would ask me in, in my career, you know, what is it like to be a pilot? Wow, that's cool. You're a pilot. Wow, what is that like? Mm-hmm. And how do you answer that question at a cocktail party without you know taking over for the next for the rest of the party? And you can. So I said, well, it's pretty cool. Oh, I'll bet. I'll bet it's cool. And but, now this but, helps them. But with a book, with a novel that you can get lost in, you're you're immersed and and you're living it. And and Raven One has been downloaded primarily on on, on Kindle, and there's there's hard hard copies and audiobook. But uh, well over thirty thousand, I thought probably close to forty thousand downloads around the world, and it's a genre number one in in three countries. But wow! A- anyway, it's yeah. It's, it, you were a top thirty internationally best-selling author, yeah, correct? L- the last month, it uh, in in all of Amazon, uh, I, I ran a promo and it hit number thirty-three in all of Amazon. There, there's you know ten million titles. Yeah, monster. So so this is, I mean, it's pretty cool and. Uh, uh, so you know, for for a time, you're you're up there with with the Grisham of the world and and Stephen King and and uh, and, and and those those types of guys, James Patterson, and uh, it, I I, th- I liken it to a uh, you know I'm I'm proud to be an independent writer and and having success with it, uh, but it's uh, it's like a a ball player going to the major leagues for a cup of coffee, <laughs> and uh, but anyway, the the, the way to uh, the way to to get higher in that is just keep keep writing books. So I've I've written a couple of uh, follow-ons to Raven One. Uh, they're totally separate stories, different parts of the world, but uh, keeping some of my main characters, following them through their careers. Let me ask you a question then. For the listening audience, they're learning a lot today. But if you had one message takeaway for them right now. How would you summarize this all? So you went from being a pilot to working as a consultant to now you're rekindling that creative juices and everything's a challenge. It's not easier. Everybody would be doing it. But for the listener right now, how would you, what would you, advice would you give them? Well, it, it's, uh, you know, f- find your passion. And, and for, for me, uh, it was naval aviation. Mm-hmm. And I was able to, uh, to, you know, to use some of my talents and, and write. And again, did, didn't know what would happen. But, uh, the, the, the response was such that uh, I want to keep, keep doing this and, and writing the, the stories that I want. 
I'll, uh, I'll have another novel out uh, next year. It's going to be uh, historic fiction okay. about the World War II Battle of Midway. Uh, there's a movie that recently came out about that. Uh, but, uh, but this novel that I've written is going to be historic fiction along the lines of Michael Shara's The Killer Angels, about the Battle of Gettysburg, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about the real men who fought it, and some of the conversations they would have. Uh, all, all fictionalized, but you know, but certainly believable. So, like Shara and and his son who followed him, uh, I haven't changed any facts. And mm-hmm. and uh, but I but I am going to give voice to some of the to some of the the real men in this case who who were there and and fought it. And I I want to bring that battle to life. And again, my I'm known for the detail and, and, and immersion. We're we're gonna. We're going to be able to to be transported back to 1942, and this is what really happened. Awesome. So you didn't just, hey, I'm going to do this and do it, but you had to take that first step. And that first step is probably the hardest, would you say? Or it, it, but it's it, necessary. It's certainly hard. And, and to, to write a novel is hard. I mean, I'm not a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. But friends who know me say, yeah, you're right. But... Uh, I, I imagine it's like running a marathon. You know, just completing a marathon is a monumental achievement. Mm-hmm. And so to, to complete a manuscript and publish it is a monumental achievement. But and, to the audience, you'd say it starts with a step and you just keep going. You know, you, uh, it, right now, it, it's, a, it's a great time to write. And if you've got a story in you, I, I, would, I would try it. But, but sure, it's, it's, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll write a book. There's a lot more than that. And, and, uh, would, would certainly encourage anyone to, to, if, if you think you want to try to write a book or do you want to be a naval aviator when you grow up or, or to be a, a, a corporate trainer, well, give it a shot. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's your passion and, and you're gonna, you know, you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> and which is which is kind of trite. I mean, you know, you know, there's there, there's some drudgery in, in in publishing. I mean, uh, you know, the words don't always flow, and and editing is in, is a huge part of it. But uh, but absolutely wouldn't wouldn't trade it for the writing specific. Is there a book on writing a book, or is there a yes, program there is. that you'd recommend? Yeah, uh, Stephen King's on writing. Stephen King's on writing. Stephen I'll put King. this in the show notes. Yeah, on writing is uh, was very helpful to me. Um, uh, there's another book I forget the author now your, your listeners know Bird on Bird um, um, but uh, but it, certainly those those types of uh, those types of books are, are going to be helpful and I, I imagine there's all kinds of stuff on the net I mean there's everything on the net but but uh, I, w- I would recommend uh, Stephen King's On Writing as a, as a place to start. My my brother-in-law was a New York City cop, and he had a way with words. So he went out to Hollywood, and he's been on several shows. Wow. Like CSI New York and, and uh, Hawaii Five O as a writer. I mean, there's there's just an insatiable appetite for police stories in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I write genre fiction and military techno thrillers, and there's an insatiable appetite. And that's another area. You know, am I competing against... Say uh, Stephen Kuntz, Clive Cussler, mm-hmm. uh, the late Tom Clancy, and the guys that write for. Am I competing? And and, and I would say no, because there, there's plenty of you know people go to a movie that was great. When can I go to another movie? That was a great novel. When I want to read another one. Mm-hmm. And if this if this if a author writes another one, terrific. But but while that author is writing 
there's other ones that are available and published that I can read right now. And there's, there's, there's absolutely a, a market out there. Yeah, because you don't produce a novel in a weekend. It, yeah, I don't. And, and I'm, I'm slow. I, I no write, human. <laughs> you know, I, I, I write big books, and I cannot lie. They're, they're, they're epics. They, uh, uh, I, and I think probably more James Mishner that, that really gets immersed in a subject than, say, Clive Cussler, who's very prolific and, and, and churns them out, or writers like that. And, and they're, they're both great. All right. Well, let's do this. Bring us to today. Where is Kevin Miller today and what projects are you working on now? Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to be uh, editing uh, with my wonderful editor, Linda Wasserman, uh, my new novel. I've entitled it The Silver Waterfall. And this is my Battle of Midway novel that will come out uh, in June of, of next year. Nice. Um, also this afternoon, I'm going to be working on the Raven One video game. Video game? Video game. What's that all about? Who knew? Uh, uh, video gamers found Raven One uh, several years ago, and 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 these are the guys. These are the the, the you know, forgive me, but the, you know, the, the Walter Mitties who have an FA eighteen cockpit in their basements. You know, we don't have a lot of basements, around <laughs> here, but uh, they they've got the whole setup, and uh, these guys have. Uh, uh, software for the FA-18, and I'm, I'm told, and I, I agree, that, that they're better Hornet pilots than I was. I mean, they, they, uh, they, they really get into it. Sometimes they'll, they put on headsets and they'll talk to each other, fly formation. You know, a guy in, in Iowa and a guy here in Florida it's incredible. and a guy in California. It's, it's, it is incredible. The technology we have yes. today yes. is incredible. There's almost no excuse not to be able to succeed. It is amazing. So uh, digital combat simulation and, and many, uh, I think most everyone has heard of or seen Microsoft Flight Simulator. So something mm-hmm. like that, a higher end. It's not Candy Crush on your phone <laughs> yeah, no. that we're talking about here. So, so that exists. And so... Uh, but a, a crew of guys and, and some former aviators out in California and a coder who lives in Brussels, of all places, uh, we, we found ourselves and uh, putting together um, the Raven 1 mission sets. So there's going to be 15 missions taken from the novel, and, and they're doing a terrific job of being true to the novel. Wow, you know, working, and that's hard to find. Working, yes, we're working in this digital, you know, okay, here's the digital limitations, and there are some limitations. But uh, but you know keeping this the story and again it's it's a story the 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 players of uh, of the the Hornet video game they've read Raven one they love they read the others and and they just love it they can't wait to be the characters that they know from from the novel it, it's surreal to me to to see this and so this afternoon I just got a, another Microsoft spreadsheet and and I'll go through it and I'll say yes that yes that's yes, yes no let's change this yes yes. And and they'll they'll make the proper corrections and it's going to be amazing. So that'll be out uh, second quarter of next year. Oh, so right around the time of the book. Yes. Wow, I'm excited for you. You're you're inspiring, man. This is great because you're working hard. You have a focus, but at the same time, you're just watching the fruit just come out of it that you don't even expect just from God. Just been blessed. I found a much better balance in my life than I had. Uh, than I had as a professional, you know, working, um, you know, in, in an organization. Those are those are wonderful years. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- there was a time that uh, that that God grabbed me and said, "You need to focus on me." And yes, and my life is so much better now. And and uh, uh, obviously, a work in progress as we all are. 
but uh, but uh, it is it's gratifying to to write. People enjoy it, um, having fun with with all these projects and and enjoying my family and and this this stage of my life. Uh, very very blessed. That's awesome. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to share today that we didn't cover? We can come back once your new book and video games are released and do a follow-up, <laughs> but is there anything you wanted to discuss today or sh- closing thought with the audience? Yeah, you know, we, we talked earlier in, in the podcast of, about cultures, mm-hmm. and um, cultures can be changed. And uh, a couple of times uh, working with uh, companies, uh, some larger and, and some smaller, was able to imbue this culture just just through uh just through a talk and in one company a local company the 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 boss came to me several months ago and says you know kevin you you visited us several months ago and initially we didn't really move out on it but our people a while back started using this briefing and debriefing technique that you taught us and now we're all doing it you've Mm -hmm. changed the culture of our company and and it, it can be done. And and uh, there's there's a cottage industry of uh, of people out there that 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 do this, and they they talk to corporations or they work with smaller groups of people. And I'm working with a a guy out in California right now. We might we might go into business together uh, to do this. But but uh, organizations like this, they like to okay. How how can how can we better improve uh, the the culture of excellence? How can we better improve our our teamwork? Awesome. And that's and that is all the stems from what I learned here when I when I showed up in November of 1981. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing with us today. Um, you truly have a remarkable story, and it's been great to get to know you much better today. And uh, for our listeners, make sure you check out the no- show notes. Uh, there'll be the links in there that we discussed. Check out Kevin's book. Be prepared for the new book and the uh, video game for those gamers out there. And also, I have one more question that I have to ask you. Huge controversy right now. You've been in the sky, man. Is the world round? <laughs> I assure you it is. I know it is. But just if anybody out there is doubting, the world is round from an expert who spent thousands of hours in the sky. All right, Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being hey, here Dave, today. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And to our audience, um, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share, rate, and view, review it. It's a huge help uh, to help us grow. And by helping us grow, their true purpose is to help you grow and to glorify God. So remember, don't just listen to this great advice and wisdom from Kevin, but do it. Apply it. Do something with your life. We love you. We know you can do this. Let us know how we can help. Until next time, this is Dave Passman with the Remarkable People Podcast. Thanks for being here. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life.